All right. If you want to have a seat again. That would be great. Hey, uh, I, I would be remiss to mention that it is my wife's birthday today, Angel's birthday. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Angel. You're getting mad. Happy birthday to you. She was over there, stop, stop, stop. No, don't sing. I figure uh, my kids and my wife uh, get the brunt of me up at the front most of the time. They ought to be able to occasionally get a perk. So this is a small, small, and maybe for her, she's like, it's, this is no perk. You know, I wanted to grow old in silence, she says. Well, we're going to dive in this morning. The other day, I was at the coffee shop, and, uh, you know, it was one of those days, short-staffed. I don't know what it was, but the line was moving slow like molasses. And it was interesting. It was like tension as the line seemed to not move. And, and I'm, I've already got my coffee, so I'm contentedly, I, I felt like I was a sociologist sitting there studying people and watching the results of them not get their coffee as people in line just got going, are they ever going to serve me? And, and occasionally somebody would give up with a huff and walk out of the, the place, like as if it was the biggest crime in the world that they did not get their Starbucks that morning. And it reminded me as I watched this restlessness, this anxiety that grew in that room, that nobody, nobody likes to wait, right? It doesn't seem like in our day there's this kind of hyper focus to simply eradicate the need to wait in any kind of shape or size. we're, We're heaven bent on making sure we don't have to wait for anything ever. And so companies have mobile apps So when you go to a uh, fast food restaurant, your actually order can be waiting there when you arrive, right? So that you don't have to wait in a lineup. Or Amazon, they keep making their shipping times shorter and shorter. It was two days, now it's one day. In fact, in many cities in Canada now, you can have your order in an hour, right? You know, uh, McDonald's, have you thought about this? You you go through the drive-through McDonald's, they have two lanes. When I was growing up, one lane was enough. Now they need two. It's like fast food wasn't quite fast enough. We need it faster. We need to speed that up a little bit more. And everything is is like that. We have to get it now. And I would say it's kind of jacking us all up, right? We we don't even have to wait anymore to to get the answers to our questions. Uh, I think this is a phenomenon where uh, it used to be You'd sit around maybe the, the kitchen table or the family dinner, and, and somebody would ask a question. And nobody at the table would have the answer to that question. And it would just sit in the land of mystery. You might never know the answer to that. And now what happens? Okay, Google. <laughs> when did this such and such happen, right? And, and, and suddenly we have the answers instantly at our fingertips. But there's this real ironic thing happening. The more we make the world faster and easier, 
the more perpetually impatient that we are as people. Everything is built for you. You don't have to wait. And you know what, folks? It has not been good for our souls. You you see, the, the Lord values patience in his children, and he's serious about patience because he knows that, that flourishing faith and, and, and persevering faith in the midst of the trials of life require it. That's, that's the message of our, our theme today, is that lasting joy and, and uh, faith-filled faith in God requires patience. It requires perseverance. And we're going to be looking at, at that in our passage in James chapter 5, verse 7 to 11. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. We're going to read this uh, phenomenal word that James was giving to a people who are oppressed, the people who are in, in, in trouble. And so uh, if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. May God bless the reading of his word. Please have a seat. Now, this, uh, this text kind of breaks down into four points, four points that James makes to a people who are oppressed and suffering. First, be patient, the Lord is coming. He, he's very clear here, be, be patient, why? The, the Lord is, is coming. Now, he's referring here to the return of Jesus, where Jesus will come again, and at his returning, <laughs> Jesus, Scripture tells us that he'll judge the wicked, he'll, he'll judge the oppressor. Those people that we read about in the first few verses of, of chapter 5 that were oppressing the poor, Jesus is going to come and deal with them, and he'll bring a, a complete deliverance to his people. He'll make all things well. You see, for, for Christians, history is, is linear. We're, we're moving towards something. We're moving toward that day when, when Jesus comes back and he fulfills every promise, and, and where he recovers every loss, and he answers every hope. James knows that, that being reminded of this glorious future can, can actually help give us perspective in an often very difficult present. As, as some real optimist once said, life is hard and then you die. Nietzsche, he said this, he said, you can go through any what of suffering if you know the why of your suffering. And, and, and the problem is for many of us, we struggle with the what. We kind of really have no idea why are we going through what we're going through? What's the outcome going to be? That, that, it's the uncertainty of it, isn't it? Often, like, it's that diagnosis, not knowing where that's going to lead, what makes it so difficult. 
And so James wants to infuse into their present suffering with the perspective of what's to come. Um, As I was thinking about this, I I couldn't help but remember back to the 2010 Olympics. Uh, What a wild ride that was, wasn't it? High watermark for the city of Vancouver, I think. The climax event, of course, was men's hockey. Uh, U.S. versus Canada. And when did they play that game? I remember. It was Sunday, Sunday morning, in fact. And uh, it turned, we, so we did not, as many churches, we did not cancel our second service. We held our second service even though most of you did not attend. Uh, delinquent that day. Our first service was very, very full. But in that second service, there were a few non-hockey lovers and the pastor and his family, dedicated as they are. And, uh, but here's what we did. My, my, my wife and I, we, we actually, and the boys, we PVR'd the game. And when church was over, there was no mingling over coffee at the end. Everyone left. And we went home, and we had the radio turned off. We, in fact, in some senses, didn't even want to hear shouts from the street. We didn't want to hear anything. So we drove as quickly as we could. We got home. We get into the house. We gather some food supplies. We sit down in front of the television. I've got this PVR ready to go. I I turn on the TV, and I saw something I did not want to see. Because the, the sh- obviously, the game had ended, and we caught a glimpse of the outcome. We saw this on the screen. Roberto Luongo with this massive Canada flag going down. And I'm like, no! And we, we flipped it to the PVR, and we tried to pretend like we didn't know the outcome. And this game, which was by all accounts, was the most intense, most nerve-wracking game in history for Canadians. For us, it was a somewhat intense, right? We didn't bite any nails as we were watching this game. We tried to ignore it because somehow, even when it looked like all was lost, we knew that we had won, that Sydney had come through. We'd seen the end. They'd won. Canada won gold. And so James, he writes to this suffering people. He says, friends, you know the outcome. You, you, you got a glimpse. You, you saw this moment of, of Jesus, Jesus carrying this massive flag of victory. You've seen that, haven't you? He's won. Praise God. Yeah, I think it's amen, isn't it? They're supposed to say amen when I say praise God. Praise the Lord. Amen. You guys will catch on. Silas, you can stay, okay? We're just going to, let's do a pulpit exchange. I'm going to go to Africa. You can stay here. I like Africans better. <laughs> Gee, we've, he's won. And we're told that Jesus, James tells his people, he says, remember, he's coming again and he's bringing justice and peace. He's coming I know it feels like you lost now. I know it feels like defeat now. It looks like that. Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. That's not the story. He's won. He's coming back. Be patient. Be encouraged. Folks, this is true today. He's coming. We're closer now than we were when we first walked in the door this morning. 
This is where, where the Christian hope hinges, that he's coming. He, he's going to come and he's going to make all things new. And tears and mourning and, and loss and sadness, sadness vanish. In, in fact, even in, in communion that we celebrate at the end of the service today, part of what we're celebrating in the cup is that we are closer to the day where we will drink with him face to face and not in some symbolic celebration of union with him, but a face-to-face meeting with the King of Kings. And it's coming. If, if you're a cross-the-box-off-on-your-calendar you know, type of person, know this. Every day we're moving towards the day where there will be no more tears and no more mourning and no more losses, no more sadness, no more death where everything sad will come untrue. We're almost there. Be patient. We're almost there. It won't be long now. And and, and every bit of difficulty and suffering and weariness and, and depression and anxiety and struggle and trial and sickness will be over on that day. And there'll be no more need to fight and hang in there because Jesus is coming. Hang in there. Be patient. Be encouraged. The Lord is coming. Second point. Be patient. God is accomplishing something in you. Look at the illustration here. James says, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. And then tying it back to the first point, he says, you too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. James says, be patient like a farmer is patient. Great example of patience, right? I mean, farmers are naturally patient. They have to be patient. I mean, they don't, they they just kind of plant their crops, but then it's all hurry up and wait. You know, wait for, the, wait for the rains to come, wait for the sun to shine, wait, wait for the, 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 the fields to dry out, all, all those kind of things. But once they've planted their crops, it's like they can do nothing to make their crops grow or produce fruits, at, at least in the first century. And so they wait. And they, and they wait because a farmer also knows this, that what might look like a, an unproductive time is actually a, a very, very productive fruitful time. It's when, when sometimes the most important things are going on. Uh, this summer, we uh, took a little holiday to the Okanagan, and we drove through the vineyards and the surrounding areas of Penticton and Kelowna and Naramata Bench and Oliver, and it is stunning in its beauty. Row upon row upon row of vines, lush and, and laden with fruit, uh, it's the most beautiful thing to see in the summer. Not so much in the winter. In the winter, uh, pruners come along, garden, master gardeners or vintners, they come along and they actually trim those vines down to the nothing. They, 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 they leave apparently only two branches. They, they, they cut it right down to two. And it looks ugly and barren and lifeless and dark. There's nothing to it. And, and apparently, unless the, the vines get seriously pruned like this, and if they don't experience, you know, sort of cold and, and winter and, and, and frost and this kind of season of, 
hibernation and, and, and darkness, the vines won't produce good fruit or, or good wine. And it's a long, long process that can take actually years for, for it to produce a, a crop. And folks, God at times in wanting to produce fruit in our lives, he will allow us to go through seasons of suffering and pruning and hibernation and winter. And there's something about winter that doesn't it just feel like it's never going to end? Like is spring ever going to come on the corner, around the corner? It, it feels so far off, so far removed from our lives. And in those seasons, we can be saying, God, where are you? What are you doing? This is so hard. I, I feel so barren. It, it feels so dead. There's no fruits. And what does God say? Be patient like the farmer. Be patient. I'm, I'm preparing your soul to produce beautiful fruit. This week I had the flu. Um, and I, when I say I had the flu, it was like the worst flu I think I've ever had. I had the beginnings of it last week and I thought I was over it and got home and it's like it hit me to the place where on Sunday afternoon I basically didn't leave my bedroom till Wednesday. And I was lying there thinking that I was dying. Despairing of life, I was. It, it was, uh, I make fun, but it was awful. Totally shut me down. And I find myself lying there. I don't know if you've done this when you're sick, but I, I pray, and it's prayers of desperation, like, how long, oh Lord, how long? And I'm crying out to God. I'm thinking, when is this going to end? And when you're really sick like that, it feels like it's never going to end. You think health is also like spring, far, far away. And here's the thing. In the midst of it somehow, in the, in the quietness of my room where I was suffering by myself, only turning to throw up into a bucket every once in a while, I felt God was there with me in that room. And as I cried out to God, I felt God reminded me he was there. And it was as if this, this three or four days of sickness and suffering had an had a effect of sharpening my senses, increasing my capacity to actually notice his workings in my life. And, and I came out of those days, and, it, and in some sense, you look back and you go, I got nothing done this week. And yet I kind of wonder if this wasn't the more productive weeks I've ever experienced, where God did something in me during those days of silence and suffering. Pastor John Ortberg has said, what God does in you while you wait is as important as what you're waiting for. You ever thought about that? That what God does in you while you wait is just as important as what you are waiting for. This is why James can say in, in chapter one, do you remember what he said? He, he begins his letter with these words to the suffering people. Consider it pure joy. My brothers and sisters, when you face trials and troubles of many kinds, be joyful about it. Remember, your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you can be mature and complete, not lacking anything. While you're waiting, God may just be doing something to transform your soul so that you will be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That you'll grow in patience and persevering. 
And so if you're in a season of waiting and suffering and loss and darkness, I know some of you are, God's saying, be patient. I'm doing a work in you. You may not be able to see it. Third point, be patient with each other. Look there in verse nine, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Don't grumble, James says. It's often translated as as complain or groan, and it has the idea of being critical or, or judgmental towards someone with our words. And James just kinda nails this issue over and over and over again in his letter. He talks about the power of our tongues, both for good and for not, right? The powers of our tongue to to build somebody up, but also the power of our tongues to to tear someone down. The, The power of our tongues to be agents of real healing and encouragement. And the power of our tongues to do just incalculable damage to someone's mind or life or heart. And and, and, and here, it's, it's dropped in on the section on patience and suffering. I don't, you wonder why. What, seems like, again, sidetrack of James here, but I, I think somehow it's important. Somehow our, our critical words, they, they don't just hurt other people. They actually hurt ourselves. They hurt us. I, I think somehow whining or complaining or criticizing works against this patience and perseverance that that God wants to work in each of us. He wants to grow that in us. But what happens is when we're complaining and and, and griping, it grows rather a bitter discontentment in us. We we get our eyes kind of off God. And, and, And the funny thing is it can feel real good in the moment. It can feel good to slander and gossip. It can feel good to put someone down. But I think James would say it weakens our faith in a real deep and profound way. And it's not our place to judge. He says, don't judge. He says, the real judge is standing at the door. Like he says that emphatically. He says, you're forgetting your place. Back in chapter four, in verses 11 and 12, James kind of expands on this judgment theme and it's, it's a real peril. These two passages are almost neck and neck in terms of what they're saying. And he says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Why? Because there is... Only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, he says. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to judge your neighbor? It's not your job. Years ago, this uh, this guy attended our church for a while. Not the happiest of fellows. He didn't think he liked being here for some reason, but I was surprised. One one week, he showed up in my office midweek, and uh, he said, I, I really want to get more involved in the church. I want to get more engaged. And he said, uh, I'd love to serve in some way. And, and I said, uh, so I asked him, so what, what's your heart? What's your gift? You know, what, what, how has God wired you? He says, I think, he said, and my mouth literally dropped to the floor after I heard what he said. But he says, I think God has given me the gift of criticism. <laughs> yeah, no, I really think that that's how God has, has gifted me. I've got the gift of criticism. I'm like, Oh, yay, we've been missing that gift in this church. We've been waiting for some, you're an answer to prayer. Come on in. Like, thanks, God. Like, where do you put someone like that in the church? Where, like, where, where's a safe place to put a guy with a gift of criticism? 
And he began to list off some of the things he'd been observing in, in our people. And, and folks, some of you just really fell short in his eyes. Just want you to know that. You're just not measuring up. And so I, I wonder, you know, do we put this guy as a greeter at the front door, you know? Could kind of screen people as they come in. Sorry, sir, you know, you know, those tats cover those up. That's not appropriate in church, you know. Ma'am, that skirt, too low. Go back, get changed. Come back to church when you're ready to be presentable, this kind of thing. Can you imagine what a way to warm up the church? That'd be a warm welcome program, wouldn't it? But you got this guy, and he's kind of, here's, here's what I sensed from him. And, and even as he's sitting in my office, I felt it from him to me was he, he came and was standing over us as a judge. I, interesting judges, they, they do. They're up on pedestals, aren't they? They, they sit on a, on a das in a podium, right? They're, they're over and above, and they're meant to, to bring their judgments and, and bring discernment to what the situation is, what's what. But, but this fellow was standing. What you do is you end up, you're standing over and above people. You're not, you're not a brother. You're not a sister. You're not, not a friend who's saying maybe in a, a word that needs to be said, speaking the truth in love. You're, you're actually standing over them. You're not with them. You're over them. You know, I, 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 image I had this week, I was thinking about this guy. I was thinking about him picking the specks of sawdust out of people's eyes while there's this massive log in his own. And here's the rub. I relate to this guy more than I'd like to admit. And I suspect most of us do. Most of us have this in us. And I think James could see this judging and criticizing as a besetting sin in his community. And let me say this, it's been a vulnerability of every Christian community ever since. Nothing can wreck a community faster than when we begin firing arrows at each other instead of that the arrows at the enemy, our true enemy that we share together. Folks, judging is not our place. It's above our pay grade. It's never meant to be. Folks, the people that we are called to journey with as brothers and sisters, it is a precious, sacred trust. We're called to honor that trust. We're called to honor one another with our words, to build one another up, to bear with one another. And folks, the fact is, we're not in a position to judge because we don't know. We don't know what's going on in their story. Yeah, maybe there is brokenness. We can see that. I mean, if you study any, you get to know any person long enough, you're going to see the, the flaws and the failings, right? But they can see it in you. We're all level ground when it comes to brokenness, right? So we don't have all the facts about what God's doing, and they're a work in progress. We're a work in progress. Folks, this is, again, where we just got to, again, get dialed back into God's grace, his relentless grace for us, which is essentially news that in, in Christ, God's judgment, his righteous judgment of our failings and flaws are not being held against us. That instead, he offers us forgiveness and grace instead of a, in spite of our wickedness and rebellion and brokenness. He offers us grace 
lavishes grace, the riches of his grace. <laughs> so much of it has been extended to, to us, and if we get dialed into that, I promise you that our proud, self-righteous judgment and grumbling about our precious brothers and sisters would considerably shrink. Don't grumble. Be patient with your brothers and sisters. Then James goes back, point four. Be patient. God's promises are true. Look in verse 10. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. James here gives us two examples of people who, you know, find patience in the face of suffering. They, they persevered. And he mentions specifically the prophets who spoke in God's behalf, uh, and then, th- then Job. And, and he says, we count as blessed. This little line. We count as blessed those who have persevered. Uh, it's a funny line, it, because it's true. When you've journeyed with somebody, a, a faithful follower of Jesus who has suffered, along the way, you can actually see how God has used that to grow them and, and brought fruit out of that, right? We from the outside can see that. And yet the irony is, is we never want that for ourselves. We're happy they've gone through the school of suffering, but we never want to go through that school ourselves and roll somebody else, God, some other faithful saint. I think I'm, I've grown enough. But we can see the fruit of, of suffering in the lives of God's faithful followers, and we can see how God is faithful through it. We see it in the prophets. I mean, take Isaiah. That, you know, when Isaiah was commissioned by God as a prophet, uh, you, you know what God said to him? He said to him, I'm going to send you to a people to preach for 20 to 30 years, and this people will never hear you. They'll never understand your message. They won't turn or repent or believe. But I want you to do it anyway. Nice, thanks God. I love that assignment. That's really kind of you. Uh, and, and that's what happens. Isaiah, you know, has this message. He, it's rejected. He's, he's persecuted for his faith in God. And he lived a very, very difficult life. And according to, to church tradition, Isaiah met his end. He was sawed in half under the evil reign of King Manasseh. Killed for his faith. Jeremiah's situation wasn't much better. Jeremiah was given the assignment to tell his, his people, his fellow citizens, to surrender to the enemy. You know, how'd that go over? I mean, they were to surrender to King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians. God had sent the Babylonians as, as judgment on the people of God because of their waywardness and their injustice and their sin. But, but here, he's supposed to give this message of surrender, and this was to the people of Israel. This was a traitor speaking. He's a turncoat. He's accepting bribes, obviously. And what did they do to Jeremiah? They threw him in a cistern, threw him in a pit, kept him there. Think about that. What kind of ministry is that? What, what kind of legacy is that? I don't know what Isaiah or, or Jeremiah were thinking as they were going through this. They didn't know when they were suffering. They didn't know when they were being spat upon and when they were being persecuted and mistreated. 
that if they persevered, one day their writing, their, their words, their, their prophecies would last for hundreds of years, thousands of years, and bless millions of people. In fact, this week, as I'm lying sick in my room, I'm, I'm reading the words of Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people. Isaiah 40. They wouldn't know that today they'd be regarded as two of the most important people of all history. They didn't know that. They, they had no clue. They just, they just thought they got a bum deal. And sometimes God, folks, in a, in a way you won't understand, he will lead you on a path of suffering. And you're saying, I got a bum deal. I don't, I don't understand. I, I, I don't get it. What is up with this? But our God is achieving a, a purpose, a higher purpose through the suffering that you don't see now, but perhaps one day in, in eternity, you'll look back and say that God was doing something great in me. And so what James is saying, even in, in, in waiting, even in suffering, he's saying, be patient. Be patient and follow God, even if it seems like it's totally impractical, even if it's totally difficult. And James gives one more example of, of perseverance under trial. He gives Job. Job is allowed to be tested by God, and, or by Satan, I should say, and in the process, he loses everything. It's like the great tragedy story. And he's, he's actually kind of a, a curious example for James to bring up. Because on the surface, it doesn't look like actually James persevered very well. You know, he's not really a great example of patience. Along the way, through his ordeals, through his sufferings, he, he questions God a lot. And as he suffered, he directed a lot of complaints heavenward. Not fair, God. Not, not fair how I'm being treated here. Have you seen your servant Job, what I'm going through, right? But somehow in the midst of suffering, Job, great, great complainer that he was, he never let go of God. He, 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 he held on through it all. He, he kind of continued to hope in him. And so we have words like this from Job where he says, though he slay me, though God slay me in the dust, yet I will trust in him. He was able to hold on to God. Ultimately here, this is meant to encourage the believers that James is, is writing to because the believers in James, they, they knew the last five chapters of Job. They, they knew that, that God met Job in his brokenness and he heals Job and he restores to Job all that has been taken. And we see that the compassion and love of God made manifest in, in difficult days in Job's life. And I kind of wonder if Job, that whole book of Job is meant to be an image of us in the church of, of what we go through. You know, we're allowed to go through this season of suffering and and yet at the end, it's going to get resolved in Christ. But they could look back upon centuries of, of God's faithfulness to his prophets and his faithfulness to Job, to the one who suffered more than, folks, if I'm being blunt here, more than anyone in this room. I know there's loss in this room, but I don't think anyone has lost seven kids and ended up homeless and bankrupt and dying of a disease. That's why I think Job is a, a great illustration because no one has a trump card over Job, right? Not until Jesus, when he would take on the sins of the whole world. He says, consider Job. He's, he points to, to Job as a picture of God's mercy and compassion. Hang in there. 
God keeps his promises. Hang in there. You know, God's promises are true. God is faithful. Some of you needed to hear this this morning because you're in the middle of it. You're currently going through it right now. I mean, this is your day, right? Like you're, you're not talking, this is not theoretical about some experience in the past or something in the future. You're, right now, it's bleak and dark and the grief is real. You're, you're enduring difficulty. Sorrow or heartache, loss, some kind of wrong that's been done to you. Know this, you can be patient because the Lord is coming. Do you hear me? He's coming back. The Lord's coming. It may be slow in the waiting, but it's a sure thing. It's a, it's a rock solid thing. We're getting closer by the day when he's going to return and he's going to make all things well. And in the meantime, folks, he's working out his purposes in you and in me. So God does in us while we wait, transforming us, shaping us to be more and more like his son, freeing us to be more of who he's called to be. Love the words of the Apostle Paul, such an encouragement. He says, remember, he, he calls it this, and I know, I know our troubles can be severe, but he calls them our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a, an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. He's saying when we get there, when Jesus returns, it's, it's gonna make that stuff look like nothing compared to the glory and the greatness and the goodness of God. While we're in it, he reminds us the judge is near. He's standing at the door. And so you don't need to. Don't do it, James says. It's not your job. And can I tell you something, James says? You're not actually very good at it. You suck at being a judge. And, and here's the thing. You're, gonna, you're, you're playing with fire. You're going to hurt somebody, and you're going to hurt yourselves. So, so get your eyes off the people and get your eyes back on God. Don't lose sight of the hope you have in him. And be patient with others. And if you need to, dial afresh back into this lavish grace that's been given for you. And as you, you open up your life to God's great mercy and compassion towards you, folks, it frees you to extend that mercy and compassion to everyone around you. Let me say this. If this is a struggle for you, if this is kind of your besetting sin, can I, can I challenge you to actually have a conversation with Jesus about it? Um, he doesn't want to leave you there. And I think it would be important for, for you, if this is something you're wrestling with, that you just find that, that, that critical words from your tongue flow far too easily. It's just kind of second speech for you. And you know that. Then I'd want to get to the root of that. What, what's at the root of that? Is there some sort of foundational insecurity in your life, some way that you haven't, haven't acknowledged your need for God's forgiveness for your sin and your brokenness, some, some covering over of that. Perhaps it's a pride. Just a, when it comes down to it, you think yourself as being superior or better than or whatever it might be. I, I, I don't know. 
This is why we have this master counselor, Jesus in the Spirit, who comes in and, and he, I, I think he'd just want to start a conversation with you around this. Get, get to the, the bottom of it so that you can actually be healed and become somebody who becomes a blesser with your lips. Don't you want to be that, folks? The kind of person that lifts people up and leads them on. And then remember the faithful. The prophets, Job, saints that have gone on before who found God faithful. Who found God trustworthy. They found that He keeps His promises even when we can't see it. God is at work. God is faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful. And we're going to come to the Lord's Supper in just a minute. We're going to experience this wonderful meal. Uh, the, the bread which represents Christ's body broken for you. And the blood, the blood of Christ, which, which represents his, his lavish forgiveness, his mercy poured out for you. Jesus didn't hold on to his life. He offered his life for the sake of the world. He, he offered it because he loves us so much. For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave, he gave. He couldn't have given a more precious gift than he gave, the gift of his son. And we're just, somehow, we get that gift. He offers it to us. And as we take the cup and the bread this morning, we just, man, we celebrate it again. We remember, we say we want this meal to be kind of an anchoring meal in our lives where it changes and redefines how we see ourselves, how we see others and frees us to live even in the midst of trouble and trials because we know we're co-sufferers with Christ who suffered on our behalf. I want to give you a few moments just to pray. If God's been speaking to you this morning, I think he'd want you to respond. I think he'd want to hear your heart. And if you're in trouble, you can reach out to him with your pain today. And, and, and maybe if this morning, if you've been feeling convicted, you go, I've been, yeah, my words have been not good. It's a time to confess that and then bring that before Jesus. Let's just have a couple moments of prayer. Just close your eyes. Let the Spirit speak to you.
Apostle Paul says, if children, if we as his children and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, we can know that we also would be glorified together. He says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will soon be revealed in us. We want to say, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And then Peter says, rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And his glory is coming. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Get this? Until he comes. And he says, final words of scripture, behold, I am coming soon. Amen. Amen. As usual, I want to invite you to stay after the service and connect, uh, make a friend. We've got refreshments back there to help us with that. And uh, if you like prayer this morning, you can come to the front just over here, and our prayer team would love to pray with you. You've got a need this morning. Don't walk out with it being unmet. And we'd love to pray with you and uh, encourage you with our words and our prayers. And uh, draw into this, these words of Paul and Colossians. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. And may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. May he grant you that.